You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Um, I am a church planting resident here at Sojourn Houston. I'm a covenant member at Sojourn Heights, uh, and I'm on staff there uh, at Sojourn Heights. And it's a joy to be with you here in Montrose uh, this morning. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to hopefully, Lord willing, meeting you one day. Um, It is an honor to have been entrusted with this text, with preaching uh, and opening up this series in the book of Job. And as we begin, I should um, acknowledge that I do think, like Joseph said at the beginning of the gathering, um, I think it's very timely for us to be going through the book of Job. Uh, Right now, we didn't plan the events to happen this past week um, when we planned to go through Job a couple of months ago. Um, And I think it's it's by God's grace that we're going to be exploring some of these questions that rise up because... As you know, um, it's been a hard week for our country, uh, for the world. Uh, I looked up, I think there's been 54 terrorist attacks around the world this month, in the month of July alone. Um, And then just last week here uh, in in the United States, we saw two black men lose their lives at the hands of police officers, and then we saw five white police officers lose their lives um, on Thursday night in Dallas. Um, And so it's it's been a rough week. Um, there's, uh, as, as we all process through what's going on in our different ways from our different perspectives, as we wrestle with the questions of, of justice and violence um, and suffering, really, um, I pray that, that this series through Job, that this, this text today and, and for the next seven weeks after this, that this would be illuminating for us. Um, that as we seek for, for solid ground on which to place our feet, um, that God would give it to us um, in his word. Um, and so I pray that that would be the case for us this morning. Um, it's, it's fitting that we're going through, through Job because the author really does try to wrestle through uh, the difficult issues related to human tragedy and suffering. Um, everyone in every place, uh, in every time, uh, has experienced some sort of tragedy and suffering. So in a sense, these questions are universally applicable. Um, and whether you're suffering right now or whether you're not, whether things are going well, I think that this story of Job and this message of hope and trust in the Lord through suffering is important for each of us uh, because it asks the question, if things are going well, what are you trusting and how will you react when that which is making things go well is taken away from you? Um, how will you continue to trust? Uh, what will you continue to trust in? Um, and so to give a little bit of context for the book of Job, it's, um, it's set, we see it's set in the land of Uz, which is kind of an obscure place uh, in the Old Testament. It's not in Israel. Job was the greatest of all the men of the east. The east is probably referring to the agent, the, the area east of Israel, uh, called, um, I think, Ammon, Moab, Edom, uh, east and southeast of Israel. Um, uh, Job was probably not an Israelite. This comes before the story of Moses. The setting of the story is, is in what's called the patriarchal age, 2000 to 1700 BC, about the same time as Abraham. Um, the author remains anonymous, though. The author doesn't identify him or herself. The date of the composition is unknown. And, and because of this and a variety of other reasons, uh, Job's a unique book within the Bible. It's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to wrestle with. Um, and as one uh, person I heard put it, said, this all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and the questions raised by his experience of suffering. And so as we look in, let's, let's, let's dig into these questions. Um, and this is going to be a hard text this morning. It's, it's, gonna be, it's, it's not going to be one of those feel-good uh, sermons, but it's not without hope. Um, and I hope that God reveals himself to us and, and, and reveals truth 
uh, as we dig in to this text. As we go through, uh, we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at how Job uh, is, is a righteous man who trusts in the Lord. Second, we're going to look at how things enter into the story that seek to disrupt and destroy Job's trust. And then point three, we're going to look at the purpose uh, that God might have for suffering and trials. And so to begin with, I want to just say real briefly that um, I think that we all trust in something. Um, we're all trusting in something. I, to illustrate, I could, uh, my wife and I just had our first child. Uh, she's uh, five months old. Her name's Tallulah. Uh, and I, one of my favorite times of the day with Tallulah is getting to give her her bath at the end of the day. She loves bath time. She laughs more frequently during bath time than other times of the day. Uh, she loves it. And one time, a couple months ago, um, I, while, I was, while she was kind of splashing around, and I accidentally splashed a little bit of water into her mouth. Um, and water in the mouths of infants is not a good thing. She choked and screamed and looked scared for the first time in, that I'd ever seen it. And it, it, and it sucked. Um, it was the worst for me to see. I'm never going to forget the look uh, on her face. She looked betrayed. Uh, she looked heartbroken. Uh, and I don't ever want her to be heartbroken. That's why I'm never going to let her date. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I don't want her to be heartbroken. But I know uh, that she will. When you're young, though, you trust everything. You trust that daddy's not going to drown you in the bath. You trust that Santa's going to bring you presents. You trust that your friend who says that they will see you tomorrow will actually see you tomorrow. Uh, and you know this, probably, because it's really easy. If you know, if you've spent any time around little kids, it's really easy to let kids down. When things don't happen exactly like you worded them, um, they're, they're destroyed. Um, eventually, though, they realize that they can't really trust their words. They start narrowing the field. I know when I was little, I had a blanket, a little blue blanket. And I love this blue blanket. Why? Because as things started letting me down, um, I knew that I could always come home and snuggle with my little blue blanket. It tasted comforting. It felt comforting. I loved this blue blanket. Um, and I remember vividly still the day that my mom took it away from me because it was such a source of comfort for me. Um, it's probably an embarrassing old age, like eight or seven or something like that. But, um, but the, point, <laughs> the point of that is, is that as we get o- older, we learn that we, we, we learn what kinds of things are trustworthy. And in the Bible, God gives us a clear invitation to place our trust in him and identifies himself as the only one Uh, the only one, the only thing in the universe that will maintain our trust without fail and will never let us down. And so let's begin by looking at Job. Let's start in verse one. It says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned from evil. And so we're told right at the beginning that Job is a man of character. This description of Job is repeated a couple of times in verse eight and then in chapter two, verse three. Um, it's, Job is blameless. That's a word uh, that means complete and whole. Job was wholehearted in his worship of God. He was upright. Uh, he turned away from evil. He lived a life of active goodness. He didn't just sit and do nothing bad. His, his actions were good. He turned from evil to do what is right. Um, and then it says he was one who feared, excuse me, one who feared God. And this, I think, is the central description of Job. Um, under, uh, the other descriptors of him kind of flow from this. Um, and here's what I mean. The fear of God is, is, is often misunderstood um, in our culture, in even the, the Christian church in the U.S. Uh, but I think fundamental to our trust in God is fear of God. Job's life was characterized by his trust in, by his, by his focus on, by his worship of God. And so why would Job trust God in this way? Why would Job 
focus so much on God. Um, it's because he knew God. And because he knew God, he feared him. To illustrate, there's this uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 6, which is another book in the, in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah is given this vision of God seated on his throne. And Isaiah comes before the throne, he sees God, and his reaction is to fall flat on his face and say, woe is me, I am undone from a man of unclean lips. He's terrified. He's seen the Lord. He knows the Lord now from experience, and so he's terrified. His fear of the Lord caused him to fall flat on his face, and then the Lord eventually rose him up to go send him after this experience, knowing that this was a man who truly feared the Lord. So experience of, right, knowledge of God leads to fear of him, but God doesn't, God doesn't want us to just stay terrified of him so that we do whatever he wants us to do. The fear of God is meant to lead us to something. It's meant to, meant to draw us to him. Fear of God is meant to, to cause us to fall to our knees and acknowledge him as God and to call upon his name with trust. Because as it says uh, in Joel chapter two, um, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But then just a few verses later, Jesus says, fear not though. For everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. And so fear of the Lord is meant to, to cause us to trust in him, to call upon his name, to bless his name so that we might see that he is trustworthy. And so when someone says, fear God, trust him, turn to him, um, culturally, this is an unpopular thing to say, right? Because it means that there's something, someone out there who is powerful enough to control you. Not only that, but is rightfully, uh, has the right to control you because he created you. But even though it's culturally unpopular, and it's really always been culturally unpopular, not just today, um, because it's unpopular, even though it's unpopular, when you dig into what it really means, it could possibly be the best thing anyone could say to you. Because the truth is that there is one thing and one alone that will never let you down. There's one thing which once received, can never be taken away from you. God himself. And this is important because what you trust is what you worship. What you trust is what you worship. Let's read on about, uh, let, let's read on. Uh, verses two through four, we read about Job's wealth, his family, and then read with me in verse five. This is partway through verse five. It says this. It says that, that he would rise early in the morning. Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job would rise every morning and sacrifice for his children just in case they've sinned, right? So we see that his trust in God caused him to live a life of active, intentional worship and informed how he spent his time and his energy and you know that you truly worship something when you forsake other things for the sake of having this thing that you are worshiping, right? For, for Job to take time every morning to sacrifice to the Lord for each of his children cost him something. What he described would probably, in a conservative estimate, have taken him about an hour every morning. And that's 365 uh, hours a year, which comes to 15 days, if you do the math, without sleep, nonstop, worshiping the Lord, offering sacrifices. He did this because he thought it was worth it. It's been said many times by many different people that you're never not worshiping. Right? You're always worshiping something. And this is true. 
Um, we're always worshiping something, always choosing one thing over another, structuring our lives around whatever thing that we think we can trust, that thing that we love, that thing we think will quench our thirst. We all need comfort. We all need satisfaction, identity, meaning, purpose. We need all kinds of things, and whatever it is that we think will give us those things is what we structure our lives around and pursue. At the beginning of Job 1, we see the description of a man for whom this trust was in God. And so his life was characterized by his relationship with God. See, for Job, if, he had, uh, if his trust rested on his wealth, then he probably wouldn't have spent all of this time sacrificing for his children. He probably would have seen it as a waste of time. It could have been time that he could have been building his wealth, right? For us, um, if, you don't think it, you know, if you don't think it makes sense, you don't think it's worth it to make time for things outside of work, then you won't. Right? If life gets busy and you weren't able to make it through that Bible reading plan that you'd planned to do, but you made it uh, to watch every game live last season, then that means that one thing you thought was worth sacrificing for and another wasn't. Right? If you're here right now, it's because you think that whatever's going on here is better than whatever you could have done instead. Here at Sojourn, if you gather with your parish every week, even when other opportunities arise, um, that means that whatever is happening at those parish gatherings is more worth it to you. Right? I could go on, but the question is this. What is it that characterizes your day-to-day? What do you place your trust in to provide this satisfaction, hope, meaning? What is it that you place your trust in to provide these things for you? God calls us to make that it him, right? So that in the midst of everything that we do, that all of these other things would fall into their rightful place under God himself, serving to support our life of worship and relationship with God. Because listen, you don't need to feel bad for enjoying sports. Right? You don't need to feel bad for enjoying your job and working hard at your job. You don't need to feel bad for being busy. No, we're often given pleasures that we get to enjoy, and enjoying things other than God is okay. Right? I love food. Um, I love laughing with my wife. Right? I enjoy the job that I get to do. I enjoy watching the Texans win every now and then. Right? I enjoy these things, and it's right and good for me to enjoy the good gifts that I've been given, to pursue the things that I enjoy. If you look at Job, uh, look at how he's described. Verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Chances are he didn't just wake up one day and look out and say, look, I have a lot of flocks in the fields. And look, there's already servants who are doing their jobs in caring for the flocks. No, Job worked hard for what he had. Right? He probably spent his whole life building up this wealth, watching as God had blessed him with, uh, with this provided wealth. But what is it that sets the tone for Job's life so that all of these things that he does fit within their rightful place? What is it that Job really trusts? If you look at verse 5, I think it's no accidental detail that Job is said to rise early in the morning to offer burnt offerings. Each day of Job's life, begins with devotion to the Lord, growing intimate with the Lord, with the Lord, ensuring that his relationship with the Lord was in the right. right. God didn't get the dregs from the bottom of Job's cup at the end of the day. God got the first fruits of his energy, the first fruits of his thoughts. The tone of Job's life was set by his relationship with the Lord to ensure that he didn't lose that relationship, that he didn't lose that focus. And so what is it that you trust? What is it that you are worshiping the most? Or to put it another way, what is it that you're most afraid of losing? What, if you lost it, would almost mean that you would lose the will to live? Right? Is it your job, your spouse, your kids? Do you spend as much time as you can trying to look youthful, vibrant, 
and healthy? Did your heart drop when the Brexit vote happened and your stocks plunged in value? And then did you regain your exuberance when the markets quickly bounced back? Right? There's a difference between enjoying good things and staking your life, staking your happiness and joy on good things. There's a difference between enjoying the benefits of money and trusting that money will always be there to provide meaning, comfort, and safety for you. Right? God invites us to trust in him because he is the only one who will never fail us. And the question is this, why is trust like this important? Right? Why is it important? The reason trust like this, trust in God alone is so important is that we so easily confuse God's good gifts to us with God's love for us. Right? It's so easy to fall into thinking that the way that we know whether or not God loves us is by looking at whether or not God is giving us good gifts. Right? And while that might sound wise to some of us, God blesses those who are good and doesn't bless those who aren't. While that might sound wise to some, it, it becomes a huge problem when God's gifts are threatened or removed for no apparent reason. Let's read on. Starting in verse 6, says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered and said, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and a house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and strike all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's a lot in here. Um, and I want to talk about just a few things. Um, we jump here, the author jumps here from a description of Job the righteous man, to this scene in heaven, right? There's this heavenly court, this divine council that's described. And I want to, to, to look at this scene and at who Satan is himself. And so what we see in verse six, when it says the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord is a familiar image uh, in the Old Testament. The sons of God are angels. Uh, they're referred to, referred to with various names throughout the Old Testament. Angels, spirits, cherubim, seraphim, sons of God, the heavenly host, in a few instances, they're referred to by their proper names, uh, Michael and Gabriel, for example. The primary activity of these sons of God, these heavenly beings, these angels, the primary duty uh, of these sons of God is praise and worship of God in his heavenly court. And they also, angels also do things in the world. They make announcements, they carry messages on behalf of God to humans, they guide and protect people, they occasionally carry out the judgments of God to name a couple of, of specific examples, it's the angel of the Lord that calls Moses, raises up Moses to deliver God's people from under the hand of the Pharaoh in Egypt in the book of Exodus. It's the angel of the Lord who appears to a character named Gideon, uh, commissioning him to deliver Israel from Midian. It's an angel of the Lord who appears to Samuel's parents, uh, telling them that their son would raise up one day and deliver Israel from the Philistines. It was angels also that were very instrumental in the arrival of Jesus. An angel of the Lord announced to Joseph Mary's betrothed husband, uh, that, that Mary had miraculously conceived a child. Um, the angel Gabriel announced this wonderful news to Mary, and then it was an angel of the Lord uh, accompanied by a heavenly host that appeared to shepherds outside of Bethlehem to announce this good news. And so angels are real living beings. They carry out God's real divine purposes. And often, as is the case here in Job, 
the organization of these angels in heaven is described as this heavenly court, uh, a, a heavenly council for God where decisions are made about what God is going to do in the world. Not all angels, though, uh, are benevolent. Not, not all angels are good, right? There's a number of angels that rebelled against God who are currently struggling against the good, age, uh, good angels um, to bring about the demise of God's people. Uh, there are those who have been chained in hell who are awaiting the, the future judgment of God. We read about that in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6. Um, and then the others act out their hostile intentions under the leadership of Satan uh, to bring about the, the end of the church, and, or to attempt to bring about the end of the church, which brings us to Satan. Verse 6, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So in the New Testament, which is the, the part of the Bible, if you're not familiar, that tells the story of Jesus and, uh, and, and what Jesus has done. The Old Testament tells a story leading up to Jesus. But in the New Testament, the devil, Satan, uh, is thoroughly described. He's, he is the devil. He's diametrically opposed to God's will and, and opposed to human well-being. In the Old Testament, however, uh, the Hebrew word Satan, it, it appears with its direct uh, definite article. So it's always the Satan, right? And in, in there's a footnote in your Bible, if you're holding a Bible, probably, that identifies Satan as the accuser or the adversary, because that's literally what the word means. Um, so even though Satan is not loyal to God, he is, because of his rank as a divine being, permitted to appear at meetings of this divine council, and he plays the role of accuser. Right? In fact, his role as accuser requires his presence at this council. And so he's there, and with that context, let's look at what actually happens. The sons of God present themselves, Satan is among them, uh, and let's look on. Satan is presented as some sort of prosecuting attorney uh, who's seeking to probe the character of human beings. In verse 7, God asks him where, is he, where he's coming from, and Satan describes his activity as going to and fro on the earth. Right? Satan has been going around examining humanity and looking for accusations to make. And when God, in verse 8, raises up Job's qualifications as a blameless man who fears God, who exhibits pure devotion, Satan responds in verses 9 and 11, Aha, there's, no, there's a reason that Job trusts you, though. He doubts the motive behind Job's piety, saying that God should test him because once Job is tested, he'll curse him. Right? Look at what Satan says, verse 9. Does Job fear God? Does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, of course Job trusts you. I've seen the reasons why. And he goes on to explain, verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house? Uh, you've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in all the land. Right, I, just said, I said just a few moments ago uh, that it's easy to confuse God's good gifts with God's love for us, to, to think that God loves us because he gives us good gifts and then placing our, our trust on those gifts themselves. It's easy to do that, and that's exactly Satan's understanding of things here. Right, and we see it in his list, list of evidence. First, you protect him. You've put a hedge around him. Second, you've given him a lot of children and flocks. You've blessed the work of his hands. And third, you've made him rich. Right, and... You've given him everything he could want, so of course he trusts you. And then to close his accusation, Satan essentially says, if you take all that away, he'll leave you. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Strike all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so God, in response, verse 12, says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gives Satan the authority to take everything that Job has. And as we read on, we see that Satan does this. In verses 13 through 19, we see four servants appear to Job back to back. 
um, stumbling over one another, stumbling over themselves to tell him about these disasters after disasters that have happened. First, Job is told that his oxen and donkeys have been taken and that the servants that were watching them have been killed. Then second, right after that, his sheep and servants, uh, the servants watching his sheep, uh, were burned by some fire that rained down from heaven. Third, his camels had been taken and his servants who are watching them have been killed. And then the fourth servant coming up says, I alone have escaped, uh, but there's a wind that came and struck the house where your kids were eating and they've all died. So Job's 10 children were killed. So in the span uh, of what was likely just a few minutes, Job loses everything. Um, it's an awful, awful story. Um, but what's incredible, I think the most incredible part of the story is how Job reacts after these things happen to him. Right? I asked the question just a moment ago, why is trust like this so important? Um, and I think we see our answer here in how Job reacts. Look at chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. It says this, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So God allows everything to be taken away from Job. And what's Job's response? More worship. He hears of these disasters and then he immediately stops, shaves his head, tears his robe, falls on his face and praises God, blesses his name, crying out, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Chances are this wasn't a matter of fact kind of statement. Job probably didn't get these announcements and think, hmm, that makes sense. You know, I was born with nothing, so I might as well die with nothing. Right? Hmm, the Lord gave, so it only makes sense that he takes away. Okay. Uh, no pro- there, okay was not a word in Job's worship here. Uh, likely he was crying out. This is a deeply moving, gut-wrenching expression of God-centered worship, saying, God, I am suffering, and it is painful and awful, and yet I look to you because I know that you're my God. Satan had said, take all away from him, and he will curse you. Job had had everything taken away, but instead of cursing, he worships God. He blesses his name, and worship is the exact opposite of cursing. Cursing is a richly covenantal term. Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden ate the fruit of the tree, uh, and because they broke God's covenant, they received a curse. And so with that in mind, when you turn and curse God, it's much more than simply saying some bad words towards God. It is looking at God and saying, God, you are unworthy to be my covenant partner. And the exact opposite of that is what Job does. He says, God, you are worthy to be my covenant partner, to be my God. When Satan made his accusation back in verse 11, he betrayed his wrong understanding, right? That Job only loved God because of his gifts and that if the gifts were taken away, of course Job would turn away, but Job didn't, right? He didn't curse God, he worshiped and he blesses God. Listen to this blessing. It's not, oh God, some random disaster has fallen upon me, yet I trust you still. No, this is what he says. He says, Lord, you gave and you have taken away. Blessed be your name. Right? It's not some general disaster. It is a disaster that Job attributes to God, and he blesses him nonetheless. In verse 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't sin. He didn't curse God. He didn't accuse him of doing what was wrong. He, he might have been tempted, but when he was tempted by evil, he turned from evil and held fast to what was good. You'd think that God would end Job's suffering here, but he doesn't. 
I know we read uh, just a minute ago, Chelsea read chapter one, but in chapter two, it's a very similar structure. Um, And the story goes on to tell the sons of God and Satan come before God. Satan and God have this exchange. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's still holding fast to his integrity, right? And Satan says, aha, Satan doesn't want to be outsmarted. He says, aha, but you've just taken all he has. Touch him, strike him, and then he will curse you because whatever a man has, he will give for his life. And so Satan again accuses Job, uh, Job's motivation, and he strikes Job. God allows, God gives Job into Satan's hand and allows God, allows Satan to strike him. And so he strikes him with sores so that all that Job can do is sit in ashes, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. And when he is in sitting in ashes, miserable, his wife comes to him and thinking probably that she's giving merciful advice, she says in verse nine, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. The encouragement from his wife is give up, curse God, and die. It's probably, she probably thought that it was merciful, giving him license to do what he probably wants to do at this very moment, but her encouragement is really exactly what Satan wants Job to do, what, what Satan thinks Job is going to do. And again, incredibly, Job doesn't do it. He doesn't curse God because of his trust in God, rooted in his fear of God. He sees evil for what it is and turns away from it. He responds to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And again, we read, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job lost all he had. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. And then his wife, the woman who God gave him as an encourager and helper, tells him to give up, but he doesn't. And how could he react this way? I mean, If anyone ever had an excuse to curse God, it would be Job at this very moment. Pause and think about it for a moment. What would you have done (laughs) if this had been you? Think about it. I think there's two ways that we can think about this. First, uh, on a catastrophic level, picture losing everything. Picture getting an email that you've lost your job and then dropping the iPhone that you were reading the email on down into the sewer and then looking up and seeing that the car uh, that you meant to get in and take home, that car has been stolen Um, So you walk home, and when you get home, you see that the house is burned down, and so your family has also been killed in this fire. And then you see a little bit of uh, mail strewn around on the lawn, so you pick up a couple pieces, and you see, oh, my identity's been stolen. There's no more money in my accounts. And then you open another letter that says you've been diagnosed with cancer. Picture all of those things happen to you. How would you react? What would you do if even one of those things happened to you? Would you turn to God immediately and bless his name? seek his face? Would you look in anger, rise up with frustration, thinking that God has abandoned you? Would you want to jump off a building? Right. Second, on a more daily level, how often have we looked at things not going our way and used that to justify sin? Right. How often have we been exhausted at the end of the day and used our exhaustion as an excuse for turning to the bottle, turning to pornography, turning to that TV show, Uh, that we probably shouldn't be watching, turning to gossip and slander and complaining to the people around us because we just deserve a release at the end of a hard day when things didn't go our way. How often we do that. And so often we use suffering and sometimes just exhaustion to justify giving in to temptation. Often our friends, even the ones who are closest to us, who we trust, will say something that, that gives us a license to sin that says, you know what, you deserve that. But if our trust is in God, if we fear God, then we're called to test our thoughts and test everything that we hear, turning 
from evil and holding fast to what is good. Job has been given every excuse in the world to curse God, to sin, but he doesn't. He mourns, he suffers, he doesn't understand what's happening to him, but he trusts, doesn't waver. Why is trust like this so important? Why is trusting God himself so important? Because the good gifts that God gives us can be gone in a heartbeat. Listen, it's not wrong to enjoy the good gifts that we receive, but if we make those good gifts into God's, or if we equate those good gifts with God's love for us, then we will either be destroyed if we lose them, or feel disenfranchised or abandoned when they're taken from us. And so let's dig a little bit deeper into this story. We've looked at Job's trust in God, at how we're invited to trust in God. Then we looked at why trusting in God alone is important because things will come in our way in the form of suffering. And now let's move, uh, I'm going to move into point three, talk about God's purpose in suffering. And I want to dig deeper because the story of Job, I think, raises some difficult questions. It raises some difficult questions that, while left in many ways unanswered, point to some beautiful realities. So to start with, first question that you, you might think when you look at this story is, why? <laughs> why did God allow Satan to do this? Why would God allow Satan to do this? Was God frustrated uh, with Job? Did God want Satan to punish Job for something, uh, something that Job had been disobedient with respect to? No, Job was completely obedient. He was righteous. He was a man after God's heart. You know, certainly there is suffering that we bring on ourselves by our own sin or by the things that we do, but that's not the case here in Job. Can't explain it away like that. In fact, I would say that the question, why would God allow Satan to do this, doesn't really address what actually happened, right? God didn't just allow Satan to do something. God didn't just approve a request from Satan. It seems as though God is the one who suggested Job to Satan, Right? So what's going on here? Verse 8, God brings Job up to Satan. He says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And in verse 21, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, crediting God with taking away his property and his kids. Didn't Satan do that? Yet it said just after this that Job didn't sin or charge God with wrong, which means that Job has spoken rightly about God. Right, so in other words, there is a sense in which God did take Job's property and children. He put Job in front of Satan, not only allowing Satan to do what he did, but coming awfully close to suggesting it. Sure, you, you notice when you look that God never suggests that Satan take Job's property and children away. It's Satan who says that. But was God surprised at what happened? Was he surprised? It, I kind of picture putting two bowls in front of a five-year-old, one's mac and cheese and one is kale salad and saying, which one do you want? And being surprised that they picked the mac and cheese, right? Was God surprised at what happened? No, God wasn't surprised. Certainly not. It, it appears then that Job was set up, right? Satan attacked him, yes. It was at Satan's hand that Job suffered, yes. But given the circumstances, God is ultimately the one who was behind the scenes, behind the scenes orchestrating what happened. To go further, if you look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1, Satan asks God to stretch out his hand and touch all Job has. God's response is to place all Job has into Satan's hand. Same word. And we see the same thing in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, when Satan asks and then is allowed to attack Job's health. So whose hand are Job's children, property, and health in? Are they in Satan's hand or are they in God's hand? Satan's, yes, 
God's also yes. Later in chapter 19, Job pleads with his accusing friends saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. The hand of God has struck me. Chapters one and two say that Satan strikes Job. Chapter 19 tells us that it is God who strikes Job. And God says Job speaks of him in right words. So which is it? Who has struck Job, Satan or God? It's a tough question to wrestle with. I was talking about it with Taylor Entz, who's the pastor of Sojourner Galleria earlier this week. He sent me an email um, after our conversation. He said this, I wanna share it with you. He said, who has struck Job? Is it Satan or God? I answer both. May I submit to you that if God did not ordain and appoint these tragedies, this pain to strike Job, Job would have been in much deeper trouble. As it was, with all his loss, he was in a safe place because he was in the hands of the living God who loved him, who was working all these things for his good and for our good. This book is a blessing to us who suffer. Had God not allowed and appointed these things, had Job's pain not passed through God's hands, we would not have this comfort and wisdom to consult. God is blessing us through the pain he appointed for his man, Job. I think that that gets kind of at the heart of what we're talking about here. And we walk, in, in, in a, fi- we walk a fine line. That we, we hold this intention. Uh, because can we say that when we want to go past saying simply that God allowed it, can we say that God caused these things to happen? We can't really, we can't say that. Because it's clear in the Bible that God is not the author of evil. He doesn't create evil. But can we go past it to past God allows and say that God appoints this or God directs this? Yes, we can. And it might sound painfully semantic like I'm just picking words, but that's because it is. It's a tension that we need to walk in. We must remember, though, that this isn't God allowing or appointing sin, rape, or murder. God is not suggesting these things to Satan. He's simply suggesting that God doesn't, or that Job doesn't love God simply because of all the gifts that God's given him. He's suggesting not sin, but suffering and loss as a, as a test for his righteous servant. And why? Why would God do this? We, we might assume that the text is going to answer the why question. If not in our text, then maybe later in the book of Job, this question is answered. But really, it's not. We're never given a clear reason in the book of Job for why Job suffered. Right? But while we're never given the reason, I think Job's question in chapter 2, verse 10 to his wife is helpful. He says this, after his wife tells him to curse God and die, he says, Shall we receive good from God's hand and not evil? And the implicit answer that Job gives here is no, right? No, we shouldn't just expect to receive good and not evil. We will receive both. It's because to live well, we need to receive all things as from God's hand, both good and evil, all the while knowing that God is not a tit-for-tat God. God isn't following us around, rewarding us and, and punishing us for every little thing. He's not following around, giving little blessings for good things and little consequences for bad things. And he's also not a God of averages. He doesn't bless those who are on average good and punish those who are on average bad. That's not how God operates in the universe. As we go through life, we need to understand that receiving good and bad are not necessarily revelatory about how God feels about us, about how God thinks of us. I'm not necessarily receiving good because he's pleased with me, and I'm not necessarily receiving bad because he's displeased with me. We are to see the good from God and also the bad, enjoying the good and mourning the bad, crying out about it before him and before one another. And through it all, we are always to bless him, trusting in him because he is good and wise and his ways are above mine and above yours. 
How, though? How are we to trust a God who would both allow and appoint, ordain such suffering? I heard a pastor uh, tell the story once of, of one of his congregants came up to him and asked him, if you could summarize the whole Bible in one sentence, how would you do it? Um, he said, one sentence, I just need two words. Uh, the whole Bible in a sentence is God saying to his people, trust me, trust me. Um, I heard that probably five years ago for the first time. And ever since then, I've looked through the Bible and ever, as I've read through the Bible, I see that's, that's absolutely true. The Bible is one big book, God writing to his people saying, trust me. In fact, I, it's, it's kind of the first verse that I ever memorized. I memorized it before I was even a Christian. Uh, it was Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. It's the first verse I ever memorized. And what it really means is that we don't trust in our understanding of God's plan. We don't trust in our understanding of God's plan. We trust in God who we know has a plan. Right, here in Job, we're confronted with the fact that there are things going on in the heavens, things going on among the angels, things going on here on earth that we don't understand. We don't see, much less understand. There, these things are way above our pay grade, above our ability to comprehend. And so what are we given to hold on to? Here in Job, we're given an encouragement, a clear encouragement that God is sovereign, that God is in control. That not only does he allow Satan to exist but he's also intimately involved with the Satan. If you look, remember that Satan functions as one of the sons of God, and the sons of God present themselves to God at his bidding, and they operate after having received their mandate from God. And so rather than presenting a serious challenge to God's sovereignty, Satan can be understood to instead be working, in a sense, as a divine agent. Right? While Satan outlines the nature of the test of Job, it's approved by God, and then limits on those tests are set by God, the satanic figure in Job clearly works within the boundaries given by God. And I know that's not completely satisfactory. Um, if it is for you, please let me know why after this, because it's not for me. However, the reality is that we, we are left with some serious unanswered questions in these two chapters, and we'll be, continued, uh, we'll be continually confronted with these questions as we go through the rest of the book of Job and as we go through the rest of our lives. Is God a just God? <laughs> does he rule the universe in accordance with justice? Right? If, if he does, then why do bad people prosper? Right? Why do good people suffer? Those are just a few of the why questions that come up here that aren't answered and really aren't answered anywhere in the book, but that's the question we come to. Why? Why do these things happen? Why am I plagued with this illness that no one else seems to have? Why do these things keep happening over and over again to me, even when I pray and ask you not to let them happen to me? Right? Why is there so much suffering in the world, so much senseless violence, so much terrorism, so much loss of human life, so many natural disasters that kill hundreds and thousands of people? We often try to understand these things and sometimes we're tempted to try to give our own answers. We'll say, God must be punishing people for something. Right? God must not care for some kinds of people. Or maybe even God, well, if, if those things happen, then, then a good God couldn't exist. Right? But the thing is that often we aren't told why and we can't understand, even with the why unanswered though. Even without the answer, 
we can see here in the story of Job that God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control, is not threatened by the presence of suffering. Instead, it is reaffirmed by it. In other words, although we can't always explain while we suffer, we can take great confidence in the fact that God is in complete control. And because God is in complete control of the world, and because suffering exists within this world over which God is in control, we can trust that suffering has a purpose, that suffering has a part to play in God's plan, and that he will turn it around for good. In fact, I think that's, it's crucial that we don't miss this point. Listen, the story of Job is an important building block in our theology of suffering, in our understanding of how the suffering of a righteous man can indeed fall within God's plan for humanity. And here's what I mean. You might see where this is going. Throughout the Old Testament, we read the story of, of the effects of sin. There was the fall right at the beginning of the Old Testament, uh, and, and mankind has been suffering and in pain ever since. Right? But we're promised, God promises to send a deliverer for his people, one who would fully redeem them, fixing their relationship with God, wiping away all pain and all suffering. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this sense of expectation, right? this sense of waiting for this promised deliverer. Job gives a vivid picture of the suffering of a righteous man pointed to the possibility that maybe suffering has a role to play. And then just a few books later in the New Testament, we come to the prophet Isaiah, who gives this wonderfully confusing prophecy that this deliverer will come, but he will come in the form of a suffering servant. And then when you open the page of the New Testament, you read that when the fullness of time had come, God did send this suffering servant in the form of his own son, Jesus Christ, to suffer for us for the sake of our salvation. Jesus, in substituting himself for us, demonstrated that it was necessary to suffer in order to save us. And in so doing, he demonstrated his love for us, showing us that we have every reason to trust him. It's because of what Jesus did that the Apostle Paul could write in Romans 8, verse 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, good, bad, ups, downs, all things work together for good. And just a few verses later, with language that I think unmistakably points back to the story of Job, the Apostle Paul adds this. He says, for I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No suffering, no hardship, no attack of Satan, not even death can separate us from the love of God who is sovereign and who loves us even through suffering. And listen, suffering is real. Suffering always hurts. Right? God invites you in the midst of suffering to cry out to him, mourning what is sad and painful. And we get to walk in, enter into these situations with one another without fear that we won't have the answer for why. Right? Without having to, to think that we need to make up a reason in order to comfort our friends and, and brothers and sisters who are suffering. Even when they really want one, even when we really want one. Job didn't need a why behind his suffering, although he desperately wanted it. We don't need a why behind why things happen. All we need is a who, right? a who who is worthy of our trust, who won't let our trust down. I want to leave with, with uh, the words of a hymn. There's this old hymn uh, called It Is Well, written by a successful attorney named uh, Horatio Spafford in the 1870s. Um, and things were going great in Horatio Spafford's life. Uh, but then all of a sudden, a series of disasters happened. His two-year-old son died 
Uh, and then in the great Chicago fire of 1871, a lot of his wealth was stored up in, in new construction and everything burned down. All of his wealth burned down. And he spent a couple of years trying to build it back up. And then in the great recession of 1873, uh, he lost a lot of his wealth and he had planned to take a trip with his other children and his wife across to Europe to visit Europe. And so instead of going with them, he sent them ahead of him while he could work out his finances. And he, he heard uh, that their ship went down on the way across to Europe and lost all of his four daughters on the journey. Um, only his wife survived. Imagine being a woman surviving a wreck that your four daughters didn't. Um, and it was when Horatius Spafford was sailing across to meet his grieving wife that he was inspired to pen the words of this hymn, right as he walked, as he described it, as he, as, he, as he sailed by the place where that ship had sunk and taken his four daughters with it. And he wrote the words to this hymn. I'll share just a few of them. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Come and trust in the Lord so that whether you're suffering right now, or whether things are going well for you right now, and, and you might, who knows, look, into it, look at a, a season of suffering in a year, in 10 years, in 20 years. Trust in the Lord so that when that happens, that you can sing those words with faith and hope and trust, knowing that your feet are on solid ground. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning, um, and thank you for all that you've done for us for your word, for the wisdom that you shared with us through the story of Job. Thank you for your grace and kindness to us while we work through doubts and questions, while we seek to understand things that aren't for us to understand and get frustrated when we can't. Forgive us, Lord, uh, as we wrestle. Help us to cling to Christ and cling to you to trust. And Father, I pray for everyone in this room, for everyone around the nation who's hurting, who's suffering in particular at this time because of the events that happened last week. Um, I pray that, uh, I, I pray for revival, Lord. I pray that this would be one instrument that you are using in the world to bring about your purposes to save lost souls so that people would come to trust in you. Pray that anything that I would have said today um, that's not from you, would you just purge it from the minds and ears of those in this room? God, I'm sorry for preaching for so long. <laughs> but Lord, help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.